If you would turn in your Bible, if you have it, to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9 is where we'll continue this time in our fourth week of our current series entitled Misunderstanding. For our message this evening, the Messiah of suffering and glory. We'll be in Mark chapter 9, verses 1 through 37. Well, one of your favorite children's ministers was once the mascot of uh, my alma mater and his, the powerful, almighty, not-to-be-defeated Yellow Jackets. Uh, some, ah, there's a sting them over here. Some people hold up horns, others gig them, but uh, down there in Central Texas, we simply do this. <laughs> a pinky in the air that says, sting them. And these days they have a pretty tough-looking mascot costume. It has muscles. Somehow they managed to fit muscles on a yellow jacket. Makes him look like he works out. To be fair, back then that was not the case. Uh, They put whoever was willing to be the mascot in something resembling a a wet potato chip, Uh, a loose loose potato bag that you might wear in a sack race, and they called that a, a... yellow jacket costume, and one of your favorite children's ministers was the mascot at the time there in Brownwood when one child, as many children do, was utterly terrified. The giant antennas or the big bug eyes, I'm not sure which one, but was not pleased with the giant costume accosting them in the hallway. And of course, being the kind and compassionate guy that he is, he thought, I should dissipate the situation. I can calm this child down. I'll help. And as the child Uh, pulled back in terror at the sight of a yellow jacket that was life-size, he decided in his wisdom to remove its head. Which can go one of two ways. Either the child uh, comes back to reality and discovers this is indeed someone I can know and love and trust, or is further propelled into the mysteries of why the life-size yellow jacket has a removable head. Uh, Which was indeed the case as the child, kicking and screaming, ran away and the children's minister, a future children's minister, was left standing there to say, it's, it's just me. It's just me. It didn't work. I can't think of a, a better comparison, really, to what happens between Jesus and his disciples and what we call most often the transfiguration. That uh, a couple of childlike, innocent, confused, misunderstanding disciples follow Jesus up to a place where they neither understand who he appears to be or who he really is or what it means that he unveils himself in this way. But that's what happens in Matthew chapter 9 when all of the gospel accounts, each one of them tells us that it was six days later, six days later that Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. Every one of the gospel accounts includes that little detail about how much time had passed. It reminds us that this this mountaintop meeting that we read about in Mark 9 is not an isolated event. It it comes on the heels of what we've been studying for three weeks now, this middle section of Mark and in the the rest of the Gospels as well. These great confessions in the life of Jesus that have already been happening. We saw two weeks ago, Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they replied with those great and interesting answers. They revealed the top three replies in the latest polls in Galilee. John the Baptist, Elijah, some say a prophet. 
But who do you say that I, the Son of Man, am? Jesus had said. And Peter answered, you are the Christ of God. In that text, we get the great confession that Jesus is the Christ. But Jesus goes on after that, we saw, to tell them what that means. He tells them, I will be killed and I will be raised on the third day. I must go to Jerusalem and when I get there, I will suffer many things of the scribes, the chief priests, and the elders, he had told them back in Mark chapter 8. He'd gone so far as to tell them if anyone would come after me, we saw last week, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. He talks to them directly, tells them how it is, seems to be spelling things out rather plainly, just like he calls and talks to us too. And that the call to discipleship is a call to suffer, he's been explaining. And as he does this, he knows that the disciples are shaken by this invitation to follow in his suffering. They did not foresee that the Messiah was to be crucified. They didn't see what we're learning in Mark's gospel, that the way of the Messiah is the way of the cross. And even though he tells them all these reasons why they should accept the invitation, despite all that the invitation entails, they're struggling. And he closes that previous scene in Mark. He says, some of you will see the kingdom before you experience death. And it's in light of all of these disclosures of himself that he calls Peter and James and John up to the mountain in Mark chapter 9. He led them up by themselves. You know, whenever there's a mountain in the Bible, you know that some kind of big divine revelation is about to take place. And we don't know, actually, from the text which mountain it was. There are a few options, maybe Mount Tabor or Mount Hermon or somewhere in the Golan Heights. We don't know how long it would have taken the men to climb up the mountain. But what we do know is that there's not a view in all the world that could have compared to the spectacle that these three were about to see. Verse 2 says, He was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, Matthew tells us. Jesus is transformed. And transfigured is is such a a strange word, isn't it? I'd venture to guess it doesn't come up in our everyday talk very often, that that you say, oh, I'm going to take these leftovers from dinner last night, transfigure them in the microwave, and have them for lunch tomorrow. It's one of those biblical words that hangs around only because we decided to use it here, and we've stuck with it because it's the best we can come up with for the Greek word its root word being metamorphosis, that transformation language that we get elsewhere in the Bible. It's different, of course, than the other word they had for change, metaschizo. That was an outer kind of change, something that was changed on the outside. It's not that word, actually. It's a transformation of the inside, the inmost nature of something. Jesus, we're told, is morphed into humanity, the form of a servant in Philippians 2. And this experience in in this mountain seems to be the reversal of that experience, that Jesus goes from being so human-like to being so heavenly-like. And the chosen three are seeing Jesus not as something new or as something else in this passage. They, we're expected to see, are seeing Jesus for who he truly is. And the real miracle, perhaps, is not that Jesus is 
a glorious nature managed to burst its way out in the transfiguration scene. It might be that the real miracle is that in every other circumstance in the gospel, somehow he's able to disclose this divinity that wells up from within him. John said, we beheld his glory. Peter wrote, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. But the sight of Jesus transformed before them must have been so hard to describe because all three of the synoptic gospel writers grasped for metaphors to explain what it looked like when Jesus was transfigured. In addition to his face shining like the sun, Matthew said his clothes were dazzling white. Luke uh, compared them to a, a lightning flash. Mark describes them as wider than the strongest bleaching agent could make them. And then in verse 4, Mark says, Elijah appeared to them along with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Moses and Elijah show up on the scene. Remarkably, these two Old Testament guys appeared and spoke with the transfigured Jesus. They're just having a little conversation about holy things as the other three look on in amazement. And Moses had lived some 1,400 years before, Elijah 900 years before. And yet, in Mark chapter 9, they were alive and in some sort of resurrected, glorified state, speaking with the Lord himself. It's most common to assume that these particular two persons from the Old Testament appeared because they represent the law and the prophets, you know, Moses and Elijah. They sum up the Old Testament revelation, and they come to meet Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. They're also both historic Old Testament figures who had their own mountaintop experiences meeting God like that. But maybe more to our, our point this evening is that we find Jesus surrounded by two who prophesied about his very life. Moses had spoken of him as a prophet who God would raise up to reveal the divine will. And both Moses and Elijah were prophets who were initially rejected by people and only later vindicated by God. Both of them were considered, by Jewish tradition, not to have died, but to have been taken up by God. And these two who had known the sustaining presence of God as much as anyone in all of history come as if to say that the same God and Father who was faithful to us to the end is with you all the way to your end. And most of all, they were there as a reminder that the weight of all of history comes to a point on Christ. All of history is like a lock without a key, like a violin without a bow until Jesus shows up. And these two are found speaking with him. And as if it weren't enough to be blinded by the radiating glory of the Lord, they watch as he talks with two of the giants of their spiritual ancestry. And that's when Peter feels free to say something so utterly obvious. We should be used to his statements by now, striking us in the middle of a narrative the understatement of all time, Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. You would think Jesus this time might say something like, well, that's why I brought you, son. <laughs> You're welcome. Peter continues, though, it's good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Elijah. 
His suggestion is a little bit perplexing. What exactly he has in mind is, is somewhat of a mystery, but what we know for sure is that he's still responding to things from a human point of view. The Feast of, of Booths or Tabernacles was coming, and maybe Peter's connecting Jesus to that. And Certainly the last thing Peter wanted was to go down from the mountain after an experience like this, back down to Jerusalem. And he's thinking, Lord, let's just stay. Let, let's set up offices right here on the mountain for you and Elijah and Moses. Keep them here with us because it cannot be, it cannot be that as you said only six days ago that the Son of Man will suffer and be killed and rise again. Anything but a cross, Peter says. He wants to stay there in the mountaintop. He wants to stay there in the spiritual memory, in the moment of, of closeness to Jesus, of revelation from God. You know, we want to live in the memories sometimes too, to make a memory out of the, the highs in life, the mountaintop experiences we have. We would rather stay close to Jesus and let that connection keep on coming and live in the memories instead of moving on to the next mountain that Jesus calls us to. Peter understands neither the power of what is happening nor the significance of the moment. That's why I imagine Mark includes this little comical phrase in the story. He says, he did not know what to answer, for they became terrified. And maybe it's fear that's at the heart of, of most of Peter's words, that he's afraid that Jesus doesn't know where he's headed. Or that if he does, it's not the right way. That it's nothing like any of them had imagined. And then Mark 9, chapter 7 says, A cloud formed, overshadowing them. And a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. Only twice has the voice of God boomed from the sky in this way. The first at Jesus' baptism, and the same message is echoed here. Only this time added to it is this little command. Listen to him. And this little odd and marvelous scene sticks out in the middle of Jesus' ministry, right in the center of his work. It's a, a watershed moment, as if to remind us that in a world crowded with voices, some of them shouting in anger, some whispering to us convincingly, some of them waxing eloquently, God still speaks, points to his beloved son, and says to you and to me, listen to him. Listen to him. Because Jesus still comes to us in our times of doubt and dismay, when the suffering seems like too much, or the dark times seem to dominate, and says, I am still the God of glory. Listen to him, God says. Listen to him when he says that the way of redemption is the way of the cross. Listen to him who is the final and one true word that God has given to the world about what it means to be human, about what it means to be great, about what it means to be first, about what it means to have life to the fullest. And when they heard all of this, they're in awe. They're, they're terrified, Mark tells us. 
All three synoptic gospels in this part of the story in the same way. All three of them say, all at once they looked around and saw no one with them anymore, except Jesus alone. Moses is gone. Elijah disappeared. But Jesus remains. And seeing only him, they went down that mountain that Jesus had taken them up. The place of transfiguration where they beheld the glory of God was just to prepare them and to prepare us for the place of service that waited down below. And every mountaintop moment of your life, every spiritual high or close moment with God is an opportunity not to live in that memory or in that moment, but to be sent back down to reality where God longs to use your transformation, use his life in you for the sake of the world. At the base of that mountain that these three come down from with Jesus, nine other disciples sit huddled and hopeless They've just failed to heal a boy in the absence of their master. They tried to invoke those powers. And when the other three get down, they realize that this moment on the mountain was really about the ministry in the valley. Any one of us would love to just, I don't know, sit in a beautiful sanctuary and sing hymns all day long. Maybe some of us, okay. I don't want to speak for everyone. Or down in a beautiful chapel like this and just spend time in reflecting prayer or wonderful fellowship meals with only your church family, people who love the Lord, encourage you, and appreciate you, and love you. But the mountain, the moment on the mountain, was designed for the ministry in the valley. And what does it mean to go up and to behold the glory of the risen Lord in its fullness, if not to be sent back down to share it with the world in need. I suspect that's why, and that lesson is why, it hurt so much when only moments later, after all of this miraculous scene, Jesus finds his disciples on the way arguing about who's the greatest. Here's our same pattern that we've been tracing throughout the last couple of weeks, that there is a a correction, and a teaching about Messiahship. And the next one in Mark chapter 9 comes almost right away. Right after the misunderstanding and correction and teaching, there's another misunderstanding. This passage continues after they come down off the mountain and resolve the issue with the boy who needed healing. We're told that Jesus passes through Galilee once again. He doesn't want anyone to know because his public ministry is coming to an end. Jesus presses forward. And as he presses forward, his disciples, the image we get, is that they slowly trickle behind him. It's the same idea you get from back in Peter's confession when he puts Peter, uh, rebukes Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. It's as if as Jesus presses on in the way, the way to Jerusalem, the way to the cross, the disciples start to linger further and further behind, not understanding that this road is the only way he can go. But Jesus knows that his success, the success of his ministry hinges on getting this small group of men to understand what he's doing. 
Because after he's gone, he will need them to take that message to the world. And so he begins to predict his death and resurrection yet again. It comes in Mark 9, verse 30. From there they went out and began to go through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know about it. For he was teaching the disciples and telling them, The Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. But they did not understand this statement, and they were afraid to ask him. It seems like the more that Jesus spells out what's ahead, the more and more the disciples are disconnected from what it is that he's saying. They're not getting closer in understanding. They seem to be getting further back. And Jesus just keeps on pressing on in what Mark calls the way. And as they're going along the way, in verse 33, they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he began to question them, saying, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way, they had discussed with one another which of them was the greatest. And they're embarrassed, at least their silence would suggest they are, as they should be, as Jesus is pressing on the road to Jerusalem with his eyes fixed on the cross before him. His disciples are dragging behind and they're having a little bit of a, a discussion. They are uh, jockeying for position in the kingdom of God. They're wondering which of them is the greatest. In embarrassed silence, they they hear Jesus' question. He has caught them in another dispute. They keep on arguing throughout the Gospels. They had argued with the teachers of the law. They'd argued amongst themselves about who forgot the loaves. And this competitive spirit goes all the way up to the Last Supper with Jesus, when Peter will boast that he will outdo all the other disciples in remaining faithful to Jesus. Lord, I'll never betray you. And the picture that Mark presents is is both tragic and comical all all in one. Jesus walks ahead in silence on his way to sacrificial death. And the straggling disciples push and shove behind him trying to establish the pecking order of who's the greatest. And hearing that dispute, apparently overhearing their conversation, it opens the door for Jesus to give them just yet another lesson in the way of the Messiah. The Messiah that we've been learning is headed for the cross. Jesus tells them the one who wants to be first must become last of all and a servant of all. See, the disciples still have visions of of grandeur. They still want to fantasize not about becoming servants who at everybody's beck and call, but at becoming people with honor and status and privilege seated next to a, a king himself who ushers in his kingdom. They're not ready to let go of their puffed-up ambition and take up their cross and following a suffering servant, Messiah. So to reinforce the lesson, Jesus takes a little child and places it in their midst and says, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. He grabs a child not to say there was something magical about children or even that they are especially obedient or trusting or simple or innocent or pure. The point of the comparison is the significance of the child on the scale of honor. The disciples had been saying, arguing, who, who has the most status? Who has the highest honor in our group? And Jesus takes one who is utterly 
worthless in their society, one who is cast aside without honor, no power, no status, no rights, and he places them in front of the, places the child in front of them and says, this uh, dependent, vulnerable, entirely subject person who does nothing but go and come when fathers and mothers tell them to, this is what you must be like. If one wants to be great, you should show attention on those who are the least significant. Jesus says to the great disciples that it will be their humble service to the humble that will bring them the reward that they seek. That their view of greatness is completely upside down. It ought to be redefined after this vulnerable child that he places in front of them. Another misunderstanding, another correction, and another teaching about the way of the Messiah. The way of the Messiah, he's telling them, is the way of the cross. And in beholding this transformation of Jesus, Peter and James and John should have known that they have to be transformed too. But they couldn't bear the thought of the suffering that Jesus spoke of. So he had taken them up that mountain to remind them again that the Christ of the cross is still the God of glory. Even as he speaks of suffering, he appears before them in in dazzling white to show them his power, and to take them back down the mountain to show them that the majestic Messiah is still the the suffering servant, that the moment on the mountain was really meant for the ministry in the valley, that they must become low if they want to understand the greatness of God and the life that he has for them. He tells them, my suffering really is my glory. He takes off the the mask that he's been wearing and says to them, "I'm, I'm the real thing. I'm two sides of the same coin. You don't have to separate my suffering from my glory. They are the same. My suffering is the glory of God. It is the redemption of all things. What you thought was glory was all wrong. This, this was all for you. And in his own transformation, Jesus lets these three see how much they need to be transformed. And here he was on a mountain surrounded by two saints. But not long after this, only days at this point, Jesus will be on a different mountain. Not Mount Hermon like this scene probably, but the Mount at Golgotha, where it won't be a saint like Moses and Elijah on his left and his right, but two criminals. And here at his transfiguration, Jesus' garments glisten in his glory. And just days ahead at Golgotha, his garments will be taken from him in humiliation and split up between his captors. Here, he's got this bright cloud overshadowing the scene, and and there it's darkness that comes on the land. Here, Peter blurts out, oh, how wonderful it is. It's good that we're here. But soon he's going to be hiding in shame after denying even knowing Jesus. Here, a voice of God himself declares, this is my beloved son, but at the cross, It will be his executioners who confess in surprise. Truly, this man is the Son of God. The way of the Messiah is the way of the cross. And if you would listen to him, you would hear him saying today that he wants to meet with you too. He wants to lead you up that mountain so that you can see the God whose majesty and radiance is almost blinding. He wants you to see his power and his authority, to name him as Lord, as King, and to find out 
that in the sharing of his suffering, we find a glory that this world doesn't know anything about. Like the disciples, we need to have our eyes opened and our minds transformed so that we can discover the Christ whose cross is glory and whose glory is the cross. We need to be transfigured so that in the midst of endless voices, we can listen to him. We need to be transformed until lifting up our eyes, we see nothing but the one who leads us on the way. Until we see nothing but him alone still there. The way of the Messiah, Jesus is teaching them, is the way of the cross. Come and follow me, he says. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would teach us to be people who know the Messiah for who he is and who seek to listen to his voice above all others, allowing him to lead us each day. Father, teach us that our view of greatness is upside down and that you come to show us a new and a better way. Father, teach us that uh, the words you speak to us, the worship that we share together, are all made for the ministry that you prepare us for. Father, send us out that we might shine your light and share your glory with the world. In Jesus' name, amen.